So we're currently in Acts chapter 16. Acts 16 is um, it's really all about how the church in Philippi was started. Um, the letter that Paul wrote that we now know as Philippians. It's how that tr- church got started. But in Acts 16, it's got uh, three stories of three individuals who had their lives completely transformed by Jesus. And Aaron covered the first two last week. It was Lydia, the shop owner, and then um, the slave girl. And so today we are going to look at the third individual talked about in, uh, in Acts chapter 16. So I'm going to be in Acts chapter 16, verses 20 through 40. It's a lot of text to read, but let me read that on the front end so we all have access to the same material. So I'm in Acts chapter 16, verses 20 through 40. It says, bringing them, them being Paul and Silas, before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They're Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself, because all of us are in here. Then the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Hallelujah, indeed. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he believed God with his entire household. When daylight came, the chief magistrates sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we're Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. And now, are they going to smuggle us out secretly? Certainly not. Go ahead, Paul. On the contrary, let them come themselves and uh, escort us out. Then the police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And escorting them out, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and departed. And this is God's word. So before we get into this story, let me just real briefly recap what led up to it. So just before this, if you were here last week, you might remember that Paul delivered a slave girl from demonic possession in the name of Jesus. And her condition when she was possessed, uh, she made her masters a lot of money because she was able to do fortune telling. And so she was being exploited for profit by her, her, her owners, her masters. Uh, but of course, when, when she was delivered from that, uh, when Paul delivered her from that in the name of Jesus... Uh, She could no longer do fortune telling, which meant she was no longer an asset to her masters, cut into their bottom line pretty significantly. And uh, so they were obviously very angry at Paul and Silas, uh, kind of by association there. And so they 
They basically grabbed Paul and Silas. They riled up a crowd. They got that crowd to beat Paul and Silas. Uh, the the uh, scripture says that they were beaten with rods, which meant that they would have been bloody. Uh, they probably had some broken bones like, like, um, like cracked ribs and things like that. And the magistrates that were over that little province there, they let all this happen uh, completely without a trial. Uh, which was illegal, considering that Paul was a Roman citizen. Uh, But after this, verse 23 tells us that they were thrown in jail, and a jailer was ordered to guard them. And that brings us to this third person in Acts 16 uh, that came to know to Jesus. It's the the Philippian jailer. So what I'd like to spend a little bit of time on this morning is, uh, man, my hands are cold up here. I can't imagine playing the guitar. You guys are, worship team is made up of heroes up here. But what I'd like to spend time on this morning is... um, I want to look at who this jailer was and then uh, sort of put him into our context. I want, to, I want to look at how Scripture says the gospel broke through to him, which is a little bit unique from the other two cases. I want to look at how it transformed him, and then I want to zoom out at the end of this, at the end of our time together, and look real quickly at just three lessons that we can take from um, Acts chapter 16. So first and foremost, let's just talk about what we know about this jailer. First, we know that because he was a jailer, he was probably ex-military, because people... Um, who had these jobs, like a jailer, they were, they were generally Roman soldiers who were retired. Because when you retired as a Roman soldier, part of your pension was that you got a civil service job. So this man, <clears throat> he was essentially a blue-collar, ex-military civil servant. And so when you compare the three people in Acts 16, you have, on the one hand, Lydia, who is an, aff- uh, she's an affluent cosmopolitan shop owner, uh, you have the slave girl who, who, was, who was an exploited, you could think of her as a mentally disturbed individual, and then you have this Philippian jailer. So if you wanted to kind of bring them uh, into our context, you could say that, that Lydia was, was sort of like the owner of a spa in Severna Park, something like that. Um, you, you could say that the slave girl was, was something like a, maybe a drug-addicted prostitute being exploited by her pimps in a, um, you know, some sort of rough inner-city context. Really, geese? We're gonna do this right now. I'm sure you can't hear this if you're joining me online, but uh, there is a near apocalyptic number of geese flying over me right now. I'm just gonna keep my head up for obvious reasons. See if I gotta dodge anything. Praise God. Okay. Uh, and lastly, the um, Philippian jailer was this blue-collar, uh, ex-military civil servant, you know, living in in Severn or, or, or Glen Burnie. So there you have it. There's the three people in Acts 16. The other thing that we know about this man is um, he was a brutal individual. And, and I say that because notice all he was told to do in this story, if you read verse 23, the only thing he was told to do was guard the prisoners. But in verse 24, we're, we're told that he did two things on top of that. We're told that he put them in the inner prison, in the inner cell, and secondly, that he fastened their feet in the stocks. So first off, he, he puts them in the inner cell which, which meant, you know, that was the place that was away from light, it was away from air, it was away from, from ventilation. It was basically the most miserable part of a prison to be placed in, in Paul's day, and I would imagine in our day as well. But, but on top of that, it says that he fastened their feet in the stocks. When you fasten somebody's feet and their legs in the stocks, that was actually a form of torture because it spreads your limbs out. Uh, far uh, past where they were supposed to go, uh, and it, it created you know these incredibly painful muscle cramps. And, and so, if you kind of just imagine Paul and Silas at this point, they've been beaten with rods, so they're covered with dust and blood. Uh, probably had broken bones, like cracked ribs and things like that. Now they're placed in a in a torture device, deliberately designed to make them as miserable as possible. And and here's the most important thing to say to to, to see: nobody asked this jailer to do that. 
So this is a man who, you know, maybe he was a brutal man as a, as a Roman soldier, uh, but this is a man who deliberately went out of his way to be unnecessarily cruel to both Paul and Silas. <clears throat> and the last thing I just want to mention here is that this really wasn't the kind of guy that Paul could just walk up to and start a conversation uh, about the gospel with. And that's sort of what sets him apart from both Lydia and the slave girl, especially with Lydia. If you're here last week, um, Paul could talk to Lydia right away about the things of God because she was a seeker. As a Gentile, she was reading the Old Testament. She was, you know, spiritually sort of open. She wanted to know the truth about God. And Paul could sort of ride that wave and talk to her about Jesus sort of on the front end of their time together. But everything that we know about this Philippian jailer is that he was, he was just completely indifferent to all things, you know, spiritual and all things about God. And so Paul, with him... Uh, He didn't begin by speaking the truth of the gospel with his words. He began by showing the power of the gospel with his life. And it's what this jailer saw in the lives of both Paul and Silas that broke through to him. And um, and so kind of shifting gears here, now I want to talk about what, what caused the gospel to break through to this Philippian jailer. Because there's two things when he saw Paul and Silas that he couldn't dismiss that frankly, I think if you and I were in his place, we wouldn't be able to dismiss either. There's two things. So first and foremost, what this text shows us is that when this jailer looked at the lives of Paul and Silas, he saw, first off, praise in the face of pain. So if, if you read verse 25, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and, and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, this Greek word used here that's translated listening, uh, the English word doesn't quite capture that because what the word really conveys is is the idea that these prisoners, in hearing Paul and Silas singing these hymns at midnight, it it wasn't just that they heard it so they couldn't sleep. It was that their their attention was captured. They were riveted. They were amazed at what they heard and saw in Paul and Silas. And the reason for that is, is because this culture in Paul's day and really the Middle East is still like this even today, is a culture in which people, when they experience, it's a very expressive culture. It's a culture in which people, when they experience a strong emotion, they express that emotion strongly. They don't tend to bottle things in. And so here were were two men who were beaten. They were denied the, the right that they had to a fair trial. So they were imprisoned unjustly. They were treated with unnecessary deliberate cruelty And yet here they are at midnight singing praises to God. Now, when the prisoners heard that, and and certainly when the jailer heard that, they were unable to dismiss that. That demanded everybody's attention front and center. But the second thing that this this jailer saw in the lives of Paul and Silas that I actually think is, is, my opinion, far more amazing, the second thing that he saw in their lives when he looked into their lives, it wasn't just praise in the face of pain, it was kindness in the face of cruelty. The, the reason I, I say, this is just me speaking, the reason I say that I, I consider this to be more amazing, this is the kind of thing that if I was this jailer, this would have demanded me to give maybe a little bit of weight to whatever Paul and Silas were preaching. It's not that it's easy to praise God when we're going through painful things. Certainly, I don't think any, any one of us would say that we're experts at that. But I think it's actually, it's, it's easier to praise God in the face of pain than it is to show kindness to somebody who's shown you cruelty because at least when God leads us through painful things, we know he hasn't wronged us. We know that we have no justifiable case to levy against God as though he's done us wrong and he's going to answer to us one day. But when somebody in our life deliberately causes us pain because of their cruelty, to be able to show kindness to, to, to a person that you legitimately do have a case against, to me that's a whole, that's a whole different ballgame. 
Because like I mentioned before, this Philippian jailer was unnecessarily and deliberately cruel to Paul and Silas. But here's what this, here's what this passage tells us. Verses 26 and 27. It says, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, the reason he was planning to kill himself was because the law in that day said that the penalty for a jailer who lost his prisoners was the death sentence. So what you had here was a man in a shame and honor culture who knew that his execution was, was you know, just hours away from him. He wasn't going to wait for all that nonsense. He was just going to do the job himself. And just when he's about ready to end his own life, he hears a voice call out, and it's Paul telling him not to harm himself because Paul, even when he could have left, chose to stay. Uh, and actually, the way that this story reads, it almost seems to indicate that Paul and, uh, Paul and Silas not only decided to stay in their cells themselves, but it seems to indicate that they also worked to keep all the other prisoners where they were as well. And so this jailer immediately, Scripture says, called for the lights, ran at the feet of, of Paul and Silas. He fell down at their feet, and he did so trembling because he knew that they had just saved his life. He knew that he had been unnecessarily cruel to them that he had orchestrated their torture, and here they were presented with a perfect opportunity to pay him back. All they had to do was walk out of a cell that they didn't belong in to begin with, but they chose to stay in order to save this man's life. They showed kindness to a man who'd only shown them cruelty. And kind of as a sidebar here, I, I, um, I was debating whether or not I was going to bring this up, but I think this is important to talk about. One of the things that concerns me, I see a lot of this on social media, if you're on social media, uh, maybe you've kind of seen and, and sensed this. One of the things that concerns me is, is that a lot of people in the name of Christianity, specifically in our culture, have a tendency to talk a lot about their rights. What they have the right to do or what they have the right to not do, as though that is, that's the plumb line that's meant to determine what a Christian does or does not do. And it's really not. It's the gospel that's meant to be the plumb line for what we do or don't do. And, and what convicts me about what I see in the life of Paul here is that he had every right to walk out of this jail cell. He had been wronged. There was no justifiable reason that he was placed in there to begin with. There was really no justifiable reason that he had to stay in there after God had literally blown the door open for him. He had every right to leave, but he sacrificed his rights. He laid down his rights. He actually laid down his life in the hope that maybe by doing so, the gospel could break through to this Philippian jailer, which is exactly what it did. That's what Christianity looks like. And so what we see here is, is that this, this Philippian jailer, looking at the life of, of these two missionaries, he knew they had something. He knew they had something of substance, something that he knew he didn't have. He saw the power of God in their lives. He saw the power of God in that earthquake. So he runs to their feet, he falls down at their feet, he trembles, and he's got one question. He wants to know, what must I do to be saved? And if you think about the question that he asked, I think it makes perfect sense given what we know about this man. Because as a, as a, as a former Roman soldier, I've got to imagine, once a Roman soldier, you never really stop being a Roman soldier. So this was a man, he was a highly pragmatic man who had been, you know, I, I'm sure it had been drilled into his mind all his life that if you want something, you're going to work for it. That if, if there's a hill to take, then you're either going to take it or it's not going to be taken. And so in his mind, of course, he's thinking, all right, well, if this God that evidently frees prisoners 
this God of Paul and Silas, if he's going to offer salvation, then surely, you know, there's something that I have to do to, to merit this, given the ways that I've failed and the sins I've committed and all the sin in my past and brokenness and all that kind of stuff. And Paul responds, him, re- responds to him with the greatest message in the world. Paul says, what must you do to be saved? There's only one thing you need to do. That's believe in the one who's done everything for you. His name's Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that message, as simple as it is, it not only transformed this man's life, it's been transforming people's lives for the last 2,000 years. I, um, I want to share this story with you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this one all week. Charles Spurgeon, the name you, you probably, maybe you've heard of, uh, he, was a, he was a great Baptist preacher in the 19th century in London, and he often told the story of how he became a Christian. I, I think he told it some, some 200, about 280 times throughout his preaching career. He would just lean on his testimony. Uh, as he preached. And um, as the story goes, he, he was a teenager, about 15 years old. Uh, he was spiritually seeking. Uh, and so he was going from church to church, kind of trying to piece this thing together and figure it out for himself. And then one day in, uh, in, in January of 1850, it finally came home for him. The way that he told the story, he said that it was a Sunday morning uh, in January of 1850. There was this huge snowstorm and he was outside and the storm sort of drove him down this alley. He, he turned a corner real quickly, and he went into uh, what he referred to as a primitive Methodist chapel. And so he went inside, and he discovered that because of the snowstorm, uh, only, only about a dozen people showed up for church that day. And so he did what any sensible first-time visitor would do in that situation. Uh, he went in the back, and he kept his head down, and he hoped nobody noticed him. And she walked in there, a few minutes passed, and it quickly became clear that, that the uh, snowstorm not only kept all but a dozen people from coming to church that day, but actually kept a minister from coming to church that day. So they kind of just sat there and stared at each other for a while. Um, but there was a, uh, out of this dozen people, there was a shoemaker in attendance. And I don't know how they figured it out or how they drew straws or what they did, but they all kind of looked at the shoemaker and they said, hey, we didn't come here for nothing. Somebody's got to preach. You're up. And so this, this shoemaker was not a preacher. Uh, he had never preached in his life, and he was not prepared to preach that day, uh, but he, he rose to the occasion, he stood up out of his seat, he walked to the pulpit, and, and, uh, and he delivered what went on to be the sermon that would change Charles Spurgeon's life. Charles Spurgeon, who probably has led hundreds of thousands of people uh, to Jesus throughout his life. Um, he, he, um, he opened his, uh, his Bible to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, which says, look unto me. And be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. <clears throat> and what I'd like to do is, is read you um, Charles Spurgeon's account of this man's sermon. <clears throat> Here's what the man said. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger It's just look. Will a man not need go to college to learn to look? You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I, he said. Apparently he had an Essex accent. I have no idea what that sounds like, and I'm going to spare you my attempt at that. He said, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. And apparently he he brought his arms up like this. He said, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. 
I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. So he basically repeated himself for about 10 minutes before he ran out of things to say, which as far as I'm concerned, given the fact that he only had the space between his seat and the pulpit to prepare his sermon, I think he did a pretty incredible job. But when he was done speaking, he looked across his 12-person congregation. And because the church was so small that day, he recognized that Charles Spurgeon was there for the first time. So this is what he said to Charles Spurgeon. And I just ask you, Try to put yourself in in, in 15-year-old Charles' shoes, having never walked into this church before. He looked at Charles and he said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) And I I appreciate Charles Spurgeon's sense of humor because commenting on this later on, he said, well, I did, but I'd not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. So the, the man said, young man, you look very miserable. And listen to this. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, the blow struck home, and I saw it at once. I've been waiting to do 50 things to find God. But when I heard that word, look, the cloud was gone. Like when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I looked and looked and looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. And what Spurgeon learned that day is exactly what Paul told this Philippian jailer, which is that the only thing you have to do is to believe in the one who's done everything for you. His name's Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And so this man believed the gospel, and his life shows us uh, three marks of, of genuine gospel faith. They're found in, in chapter 16, verses 33 through 34. It says, he took them, the jailer took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. Right away, all, in his, all he, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, He set a meal before them and he rejoiced because he believed God with his entire household. And that jailer's life, it really, what it shows us is three ways that the gospel will change anybody who puts their their faith in Jesus. First and foremost, what his life life shows us is that real gospel faith will make you compassionate. It's so significant to me. The very first thing that the jailer did after meeting Jesus is the very first thing he he should have done when he met Paul and Silas, which was wash their wounds. And I, I love the picture that that paints for us because as a Roman soldier, this was a man who had caused so much pain in his life. This was a man who had caused so much destruction. This is a man who had caused so many wounds, physical and otherwise, in the lives of other people. But now as a follower of Jesus, he was washing them. And so the gospel, first and foremost, what it'll do when it takes root in your life is it'll turn you from a wound maker to a wound washer. It'll turn you from one who causes hurting to one who brings healing because it'll make you compassionate. There is absolutely no way that you come into contact with the love of God as found in Christ Jesus without coming away a more compassionate individual. And one of the, one of the best ways for you and I to tell whether or not we're really growing in our relationship with Jesus is just by asking ourselves the question, am I, am I more compassionate toward people than I used to be? Am I better at extending the compassion that God has shown me in Jesus than I was a day ago, a month ago, a year ago? First off, what his life shows us is that the gospel makes you compassionate. Secondly, 
His life shows us that the gospel turns you outward because notice he doesn't hold his, his relationship with Jesus to himself. He gets his whole family involved and they all get baptized, which is a way of identifying publicly with the Christian faith, but also of identifying with the Christian community. And so what his life shows us is that right from the beginning of this movement known as Christianity, followers of Jesus have understood that Christianity, your relationship with Jesus might be a very personal thing, but it is absolutely not a private thing. When the love of God takes root in your life, you tell people that you love about it and you identify with and you commit to a community of people who are determined to live out their faith in the footsteps of Jesus as well. So secondly, his life shows us that gospel faith will turn you outward. But thirdly and lastly, his life shows us that gospel faith will bring you joy. That no matter what your story is or where you've come from, uh, you come to Jesus and you're going to walk away with joy that you cannot find anywhere else. So that in essence, is the story of the Philippian jailer. But now what I wanted to do as we kind of begin ending our time here is I want to zoom out uh, and and look at at three lessons that we can gather, not just from the life of this Philippian jailer, but from all of Acts chapter 16 um, in general. I said this on the front end, and if you were here last week, you know this, but Acts 16 gives us three stories of, uh, of three different people. You have Lydia, who's the cosmopolitan, well-off businesswoman. You have the slave girl, uh, who's this exploited individual living on the margins of society. And then you have the Philippian jailer that we talked about this morning. And and the, the first and most obvious thing to point out about those three individuals is that they could not be any more different. That That first and foremost, racially, one was an Asian, that's Lydia. One was a Greek, that's the slave girl. And one was a Roman, that's the jailer. Uh, economically, one was from the upper class, one was from the lower class, one was from the middle class. Even you know, regarding their, their spiritual levels of interest, you had one who was spiritually open, one who was demonically hostile, and one who was totally indifferent. And, and not only were these individuals different you know, on a personal level, but also they had radically different needs. Um, Lydia, you could say, had a, had a deeply intellectual need. That's why Luke tells us in verse 14 that it was only as she studied the Bible for herself and as she persistently listened to Paul explaining how Jesus was the fulfillment of what she'd been reading, it was then and only then that God caused the truth to come home for her. And so Lydia was the type of woman, you know people like this, maybe you are a person like this, Lydia was the type of woman who was not content to leave her intellect sort of checked at the door in order to believe in Jesus. She had an intellectual need and Jesus met that need for her. But the slave girl's need was nothing like that. The slave girl, you could say, had a psychological need because being a slave in her culture and and really in any culture meant that she had completely lost her identity. She completely lost her sense of individuality, her sense of of self-worth as a a person created in the image of God. This was a a young girl, probably, who'd been taught her entire life that she was nothing more than the property of her masters, that her highest calling in life was to please them in any way that they saw fit. And so there was a psychological woundedness in that slave girl, the likes of which we probably can't even identify with it. And not only was she under the ownership of her masters, but she was under control of an evil spirit. And so this was a person who had no sense of self whatsoever. She had a deep-seated psychological need, and in an instant, Jesus broke through all of that and met that need and delivered her from that entirely. But then this jailer, you could say, had a moral need. This story shows us that he ran to the feet of Paul and Silas once they had shown him a kindness that he knew he didn't deserve, a kindness he'd probably never shown anybody in his life. 
And scripture said he was so convicted by that that he trembled at the feet of these prisoners asking, what, what do I have to do to be cleansed from the burden of my sin, to receive salvation, to be forgiven of all that I've done wrong? And so what you have here in Acts 16 is three incredibly different people who had incredibly different needs, but amazingly, Jesus was exactly what each one of them needed. And so what, what, what that is meant to show us, this is actually, I know I took my time getting to it, but that's gonna, this is going to lead us to our first idea today. I only have three of them. We're, we're going to get through them real quick. Number one, what Acts 16 shows us is, is that the gospel's for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. You, you can't say that Christianity works for some people. It might not quite work for everybody as though there's a Christian type because there is no Christian type. There is no specific set of needs that Jesus can speak to, but some that you know he, he's not really interested in. The gospel is for absolutely everybody. Simply put, if you're still turning oxygen into carbon dioxide, you need Jesus, and Jesus has what you need. Number one, the gospel is for everyone. Number two, what Acts 16 shows us is that the gospel unites. You look at the final verse. This is pretty incredible. You look at the final verse in this story. It's verse 40. It says, After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers, and then they departed. What that verse is teaching us is that the church at Philippi, which is where all the converts in Philippi gathered, was at Lydia's house. So you you picture that. Picture what what a gathering of God's people looked like at Lydia's house. What you would find is that in in Lydia's home, worshiping side by side from then on out, was Lydia, this slave girl, and this Philippian jailer. Now, let me me elaborate on, here's something to consider. More people than just these three were saved in Philippi. It's not as though these were the only three converts that responded to the gospel. But let me explain why I am absolutely convinced Scripture specifically records God made sure to give us these three people's story. Some of you are aware of a, um, a very old prayer that Jewish males would begin their day with throughout the centuries. Specifically in Paul's day, it was a common thing for Jewish males to begin their day by praying, and they would actually say, God, I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Because in that day and in that culture, those three groups of people were seen at the, at the bottom of the, they were considered to be the bottom of the barrel, societally speaking. That, that uh, women were considered to have the inferior gender, slaves the inferior class, Gentiles the inferior race. And so what you have here is, is, is a picture showing us that God had the audacity to build his church on these three despised classes of people, these three despised groups of people. That God had the audacity to build his church in Philippi with a woman like Lydia, a slave like this girl who was formerly possessed by a demon and a Gentile like this Philippian jailer. And if that is meant to show us anything, it's that pedigree means absolutely nothing inside the kingdom of God. And and furthermore, if that's meant to show us anything, and this is a theme you see consistently throughout the book of Acts, is that God strongly desires there to be diversity inside his family. That from the beginning of Christianity, God strongly desires that his family would be made up of people from different classes and different races and different cultures and different backgrounds because there's something that uniquely glorifies God when, when the world looks at the church and sees groups of people brought together that could not otherwise be brought together outside the church. And what you see here is that these people were not just saved individually. They're now referred to as brothers and sisters. They're now referred to as a family. These people that otherwise had nothing in common and maybe would have despised each other were now made a spiritual family. And that's because the gospel is the greatest force 
in the universe when it comes to bringing people together and smashing boundaries that would otherwise keep us apart. So first off, the gospel's for everyone. Secondly, the gospel unites. But thirdly, and this is going to be my last idea today, it's that the gospel is true freedom. Now, let me, let me just ask you a question. As I was putting this idea together, I just I, this thought popped into my head. Let me, let me ask you, what is real freedom? At, at the end of the day, when you boil it down in its purest form, ask yourself, what, what is real freedom? Because a lot of times, the way that people talk about freedom suggests that freedom is the ability to do what you want, whatever you want. It's the ability, stated a little differently, freedom is the ability to alter your sur- surroundings however you desire. And I just want to offer you, I don't think that's real freedom. At least that's not the purest form of freedom. All right, real freedom is the ability to no longer need your surroundings to change at all because what's happening around you no longer has the ability to control and define what's happening inside you. That's real freedom. And until you have that freedom, you'll never have real freedom because you will be defined and controlled by what's going on outside your life. And on this side of eternity, what's going on outside of our lives is never really going to be that good. And if it is that good, it's not going to last very long. Amen? Real freedom is to be completely free from anything outside of you controlling what's happening inside of you. And that is precisely the freedom that Paul had. That's the freedom that the gospel, and I want to tell you only the gospel can give us. Because in this story, what you have is Paul in chains, Paul in the stocks, and yet he's singing. And the reason why he was singing is because even though he was in chains physically, in Jesus, he was already free. See, if the meaning of our lives, meaning the, 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 the greatest source of love in our lives or hope in our lives or meaning in our lives is, is our career or our relationships or our reputation or our physical health or anything like that, then suffering not only can but it will devastate us eventually because suffering not only can but it will take those things away from us eventually. But if the main thing in our lives is God and his love for us, if that is where we tap real meaning in life, if that's what we go back to for our primary foundational source of love and hope and meaning and sense of self-worth and all of that, then suffering can't take that from us. Actually, suffering can't touch us because it can't take that away. And so the reason that Paul could sing in the stocks in Acts chapter 16 was because he was already free. Because the gospel frees you. And Paul knew all of this. He, he went on to spend his life and give his life preaching this. The gospel frees you from your past, from all the guilt and the shame of the things that you've done that, that you wish you didn't do or the things that you hadn't done that, that you wish you had the strength to do. The gospel says that Jesus has succeeded in every place that you've failed, so you're free from your past. The gospel also frees us from fear of the future, from wondering if there's one day going to be a test that we fail, and so then we're not enough for God. The gospel says that, before, that in Jesus... The verdict is in before the performance. In Jesus, there is already now no condemnation for those who put their trust in Jesus. And so Paul, knowing this, what, what, knowing this, what that does is it makes you free in the present. And that's what, that's what Paul was. He was free from the chains that bound him. He was free from the walls, those prison walls that surrounded him. He was free from the mistreatment and the injustice that he experienced. He was free from the physical wounds on his body because no suffering could take away what mattered most to him and the foundation on which he had laid his life. That's what real freedom looks like, and it's the freedom that only Jesus can give us. And so I want to call the worship team up, and we're going to close down with this. Here is the brilliant irony of this story here in Acts 16. It's that by being put in chains, and it's really only by being put in chains, Paul and Silas were able to show the world and this Philippian jailer what real freedom was. And actually, it's only because Paul lost his freedom that this Philippian jailer was able to find 
his. And all Paul was doing in that case is just walking in the footsteps of his Savior, of my Savior, of hopefully your Savior, Jesus, who was confined so that we could be liberated and who got the sentence we deserved so that we could go free. <clears throat> Listen, we, we say that we exist as a church to see lives transformed by Jesus, and we really believe in that vision. We, we really believe in that reason for being because we really believe that Jesus can transform absolutely anybody. We believe that Jesus is able to meet the intellectual needs of someone like Lydia, that he's, he's able to meet the psychological needs of someone like this slave girl, that he's able to meet the moral needs of this Philippian jailer. And my personal conviction is that whoever you are, he will prove himself to be enough for you. And whatever your need is, he'll have exactly what's required to meet it. And, and my, my heart's desire as your pastor is that you would go on to know that in deeper, more life-changing ways throughout your life. Because as you and I do, as we come to know the sufficiency of Jesus deeper and deeper throughout our lives, it'll completely transform us. And it has the power to give us joy even in a jail cell. That's it. And that's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you for, for these three stories that you recorded in your word, that you determined uh, we're not going to fade away. We're not going to perish um, until you, you return and call us home. Uh, God, thank you for the hope that these stories give us. Uh, the stories of three people that, that had as different backgrounds as could be, that had as different needs as could be, and yet your son Jesus was absolutely enough for each and every one of them. God, I, I know that on this field right now, or through this screen right now, there are people, uh, every single one of them is unique. They had different childhoods. They had different experiences. They have unique pains. Some that maybe they've told to others, some that maybe they've, they've never vocalized out loud, different burdens, different forms of baggage, different questions, different cares, different concerns. Father, I want to thank you that your son Jesus is, is enough for absolutely every single one of us. God, in, in my request that we as a community, we would be a group of people who all throughout our lives, as long as you give us in this life, that as long as we have breath, we would consistently be a people who over and over again take our baggage and our burdens and our past and our trauma and our pain and all of it, our needs, that we would take it over and over again to the feet of Jesus, where we would find over and over again that Jesus is enough. In the name of your Son, we ask these things. Amen.